Hey, what's up, Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Seng, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited, and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. Um, we will be in Luke chapter 2 tonight. Uh, and before we read, we want to take a moment to lean into this period of waiting that Advent represents. We want to have a minute of silence where we'll just stand together in silence reflecting on Jesus' first coming, hoping for his second, and remembering that he who promised is faithful. Uh, so we're going to take a one minute uh, of silence, unbroken silence, and then I will at the very end break it with the reading of God's word, symbolic of the light of the world who came in the period of darkness. So let's take one minute now in silence. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. What are you waiting for? This is a question that over the last few years of my life is one I haven't been able to shake. 
that has been both the most exhausting and exciting question I could ask or be asked, and yet, no matter the season or the way it changes, it seems that this question is one that still always finds its way back to me. What are you waiting for? This question comes with a myriad of answers, swinging from surface-level responses about the traffic lights to change or the Trader Joe's line to go quickly, to deeper places within the heart, perhaps connected to the ache of a significant relationship or the desire to see a child come home. What are you waiting for? This is, if we're all being honest, a loaded question. And one that, when considered, provokes the human heart towards response in a way that very few other questions can. Waiting, it has this power to reveal the very honest and often fatiguing tension we all live in of what is and what could be. It forces all of us into this annoyingly, almost childlike place of dependence to a vulnerability that is, no matter how big or small, an inescapable part of the human story. Waiting is where we, as people of God, find out what faith actually means and where we discover the true potential of hope. And not even what it gives way to, but in what it does to us as we look for it. What are you waiting for? And what is waiting doing to you? We are currently in the season of Advent and in it we are exploring the lives of those who lived the Christmas story who through their waiting and believing discovered not only the miracle of the Messiah, but of the life connected to him. And set against the backdrop of this whole thing is waiting, is a story about real people who entered into an ancient promise without actually knowing when or how it would come to be. These very real people lived and wrestled with the space of the in-between, of a hope for something that they could not yet see with their eyes, a hope of something so great that it would not only change their world, but the whole world. Waiting is found in each one that we find in this Christmas story. And each of those characters in the story had to take their own journey. Now, one in particular lies amongst uh, the infamous cast, and though barely mentioned in comparison to people like Elizabeth and Mary and the shepherds, she plays a central role in understanding the invitation we are given through the Christmas story. And so today we're going to look at the life of a woman named Anna, a prophet, and we're going to explore how her story shapes our own, and we're going to do this in three movements, waiting, worship, and witness. Are you ready? Okay, you seem a little sleepy, just some feedback. <laughs> As we enter into our story in Luke chapter 2, we are quickly introduced to this woman named Anna. But in order for us to understand who she is and her role in this particularly sacred and unique moment, we have to first both understand the context and the setting for which she enters the story. Prior to her introduction, we see that Jesus has already been born and that Mary and Joseph were now doing what all Jewish parents did after their firstborn child was born, a ritual of purification, performing the redemption of the firstborn, and this is basically like a baby dedication or the act of consecrating their child to the Lord. And this was something that would have been done by all Jewish parents who were living in accordance with the Torah. So as they do this, we find them entering the temple where this ritual would take place. 
And we see that they're met by a man named Simeon. We read this just a few verses prior to the ones that were read tonight. Now, this is a man who had been, like all of Israel, waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one of the prophets, the rescuer of all people. And we don't have a lot of details, but what we do know is as they entered the courts of the temple, Simeon knew that this child was the one that he and all of Israel had been waiting for. And this, this was a big deal. This was a holy moment. Simeon, who we read had been waiting a long time, and by that I mean he was super old. (laughs) He finally saw with his eyes what he longed to see the most, the fulfillment of what he, and not just he, but all of Israel had been waiting for. Somehow in this moment, Simeon knew. Somehow Simeon saw, and he wasn't alone. Enter Anna. Anna, we read in just three verses, approaches Jesus at that very moment, the same moment as Simeon, and she also recognizes him as the Messiah. And we're told that she too blesses him and then began to speak about him to anyone who would listen. Now, This account on the surface can feel very basic, and honestly, if I'm just speaking from my own experience, a little boring. It doesn't, at least upon first reading, give off that magical Christmas vibe we're all looking for this time of year. But within it, underneath what appears to be a normal day at the temple, we find a consistent thread that lives at the heart of the Christmas story. And that is that there is more happening and more on display than meets the eye. While Luke, the author of this story, doesn't give us a lot of information about Anna, he does, in three lines, give us cues that point to the significance of this moment and informs those who would come after it of how the journey of waiting can not only transform but illuminate the essence of hope itself. And that leads us to our first movement, waiting. It could be said that one of the most defining factors, at least as we know it in Anna's life, is that she waited. Luke tells us that Anna waited for the Messiah. Anna waited for redemption. Anna waited in the temple. Anna waited for 84 years. Anna, if we know nothing else about this woman, is that she knew what it meant to wait. But her waiting, it seems, was at some level distinct and defined differently than so many others. I mean, what would make a woman wait 84 years for literally anything? I mean, bless her, yeah? No? Any women in the room? Like, 84, no problem? Like, what? (laughs) And I mean, in all seriousness, what about her and the experience of waiting kept her in the game? What kept her going to the temple day in and day out? What kept her heart attuned and her hope filled as the days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months and months turned into years and your years turned into 84 years? What kept her eyes open and looking as she found herself on the days of the almost and shouldn't it be? What kept her faithful to the promise? Psychologists have coined to distinguish two types of waiting that individuals will experience in life. And it's these two distinguishers that I think point us to what we see in Anna. What we see really as essential to waiting for the long haul or waiting well. These two types of waiting are called active waiting and passive waiting. Now, these are exactly what they sound like. Active waiting involves being actively engaged in a waiting period, including taking deliberate actions, seeking opportunities, and participating in the wrestle emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. 
and seeing how all that contributes not just to the experience of waiting, but to the outcome of it as well. Now, passive waiting, it can be defined as the opposite. It is waiting that often involves a sense of resignation or inactivity. It lacks intentional effort or participation in the waiting period, relying more on the circumstances to change rather than being changed by the circumstances. Another way we could name these types of waiting, and because I'm the boss of this sermon, I'm going to do so, is godly waiting and worldly waiting. Godly waiting, at least as we see it in the scriptures, is active. And worldly waiting is passive. I'll speak to both of those things more in a moment. Now, what we see in Anna is that she actively waited. She chose how she would respond to the desires and the promises before her. In this, it not only shaped how she would receive the promise, but who she would become on the way to it. These two terms, while maybe a little bit clinical, give us at least a small glimpse and some language into the choice that we all have in waiting. You see, you don't get to choose if you wait or not, but you do get to choose what it does to you and in you. And how we wait has the power to determine who we become and what can be done in our waiting. But equal to the importance of how we wait is who or what we are waiting on. The object of our waiting undoubtedly impacts and directs how we wait. I mean, if you're waiting on human intervention or circumstances alone, our waiting will be solely based on hope in the temporal, hope in what we or what others can do, bound by the limits of time and space and flesh and obstructed wisdom. But if we're waiting on God, really waiting on an outcome that only he could produce, waiting on the realities of his kingdom to come breaking into our lives, it will lead us to a different perspective, an acknowledgement and possibility that wasn't there before. This, again, is the difference between godly waiting and worldly waiting. And the greatest dichotomy in both is where you aim your hope. In godly waiting, you will trust in a person. And in worldly waiting, you will trust in your circumstances. In godly waiting, you will wait in hope, which can be defined as the coming good based on the character and the nature of God. But in worldly waiting, you will live in a general expectation, the external factors that could potentially be controlled or influenced. In godly waiting, you will be required to trust, to actively trust God for what will or could be. But in worldly waiting, you will inevitably have to land in a state of passive resignation and happenstance. Here's what we have to get about these two types of waiting. While both powerful, both have the ability to lead us into either encounter or escape. And for Anna, it was encounter. This leads us to our second movement, worship. What you are waiting on inevitably shapes your experience in the waiting. And what we know about Anna from our author Luke is that in her active, godly waiting, she was propelled into a posture that positioned her for what was promised. Luke tells, Anna, Luke tells us that Anna never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Now we could just check out and assume that this was her job as a prophet, or that this was the inevitable constitution of a widow, you know, put your lonely self where people are. But it's here that as we lean in, we see something about how Anna was waiting. 
Now worship to most of us is defined in 20 minute increments at the beginning or the end of a gathering. And for most of us, our response to the definition of worship is more consistent with what songs we sing or what the melodies are that are being hummed. But in Anna, we see that worship was born from her waiting was the posture that she took in waiting and that worship was what catalyzed her position of faith and expectation in waiting. In waiting, most of our natural responses aren't to position ourselves to actually receive, but usually instead it is to reach for or compose the promise we hope to see. Worship, as we see it in Anna, tells us that she was aware that the promise she was waiting on actually demanded something different of her. It demanded full surrender to have the full experience. It demanded a full release of her ability to contribute or shape how it should come or what it should look like. And that, that is worship. Her posture of dependence, rightly aligning her hope in the only one who could come through was what set the stage for what would come next. For faith in the one who could fulfill his promise to her. It's almost as if worship and waiting gets our eyes back on the only one or the only thing that could actually define reality in a way we hope it would be defined. It's almost as if worship was both the fire pit and the oxygen. Worship was the space that could rightly hold and align the burning within Anna, but also fuel her faith to believe and trust the only one who could really change her reality. Anna's discipline of being in the temple, while we know very little about it, makes us or should make us consider that she, at least at some level, took a posture that led to a specific position. And if you are not tracking with the alliteration right here in this moment and celebrating it, I don't want to hear anything from you after the gathering. (laughs) I've given you three W's and I'm about to give you three P's, okay? You tracking with me? You okay? Let's talk about her position. Anna's presence in the temple, while, yes, fueled, uh, while it fueled her faith as she worshiped God, was also the place where she could be positioned to receive the promise. It couldn't have been lost on her that the temple is where she would find the Messiah if he came. And so without fail, we see that she positioned herself in the place he would be, waiting in expectation and faith, day in and day out, ready to see the promise fulfilled when it came. The position we take in waiting where we live in it, and I'm, just, I'm not talking about your physical presence, I'm talking about your headspace and your heart space. Where you live in waiting is often the expression of faith we actually have and hunger for. It's witness to what we actually want. You see, so often we allow the ache of godly waiting, that ache or that wrestle within us as we're even waiting on God to actually deter us from deepening our faith in such a way that we would not only be postured in our hearts to believe for what we're supposed to see, but also positioned to actually receive what has been promised. And for each of us, this translates differently. For you, it might be that your position is that you, like Anna, you need to stay in God's house. That as you are waiting to know whether this God is actually real or powerful or personal enough to actually love you, your position isn't to bail because of past hurt or fear, but to stay because it's here that you know you have the greatest chance of seeing what you hope to be true, what will be true. And maybe for you, it is leaving a relationship, removing yourself from a place and changing your position so that you can not only see rightly what has been, but be positioned to receive what could be 
in a different or a new relationship. My point is this, position matters. And position is an expression of worship and trust. And Anna, we see in worship, postured herself, positioned herself so that she could receive the gift of the promise. Now, for Anna, her worship shaped how she received the promise. It really did. There is a direct correlation in the story. There's a reality to this at play in our text. As Anna aimed her imagination and heart over and over again towards the one who could make her waiting turn to rejoicing, we see that how she waited in worship actually gave her eyes to see fully the promise being given. In verse 38, we're told that Anna gives thanks to God and that she couldn't stop speaking about the one who would come. One of the quiet and often dismissed distinctions about Anna is that while she was in the temple and while she was a prophet, she was actually not the one scholars or readers of the story would expect to see both proclaim and declare that Jesus had come. Anna, while in the temple, sat in the company of priests. Priests who had studied every prophecy about the coming king, who had labored and positioned their lives towards what was supposed to be expectancy. And yet here she was, and here they were, and they couldn't see. Where had they aimed their eyes? How were they waiting? And how is it that Anna and her waiting could see? You see, how we wait matters. It is the ability, it, is, it has the ability to obstruct our actual sight and cause us to miss the goodness of God, not only with us in the waiting, but with us in the promise. Now there's one final thing I have to mention about Anna and how she waited before I can move on. One more distinguisher that Luke gives us about Anna is that not only did she worship in the temple, but she also prayed and fasted He lists these two spiritual practices specifically, and this at Bridgetown should really catch our attention, yeah? Thank you, Luke, for that. We'll take it as a little affirmation, yeah? Yeah. Now, in this context, this is how I would define both of these practices. Prayer. It is the act and the practice of looking in the face of God so that we might recognize him when he shows up to keep his promise. And fasting This is about restraining our indulgences to acquire a taste for only what God could feed us. These two distinctives give us insight into two important things, two things that we need to consider in our waiting. First, how we wait shapes our appetite. There is a call in waiting to refine our appetites for the actual meal we hunger for to discipline our palate, to not just snack on the minor, mildly satiating realities of our own comforts or the comfort of avoidance we find through others or distractions, but to, in waiting, abstain or indulge in only that which will lead you to feast on the thing you actually desire. Our appetites in waiting, the small indulgences that we make, consolations we try to create when the ache for what we want most gets too hard or too overwhelming, it matters. And how you curb your appetite and shape this appetite impacts what you will actually hunger for and where you will actually aim your hope. 
Now second, it has to be said that prayer and fasting are not a comfortable way to wait. Very few of you are signing up to do these practices on the regular. I mean, restraint and the discipline of bringing yourself into God's presence amidst what feels hard and invisible, that is not an easy task. It's easier to indulge yourself and escape. Easier to surround yourself with people who have been hurt like you or angry like you or disappointed like you. Easier to indulge in lesser things in mediums that distract the pain, that numb you out altogether, that curb the rumblings left by pierced delay and disappointment. It is easier to do those things than it is to restrain your reaching and bring all that aches before God, the one who also seems to be dragging his feet a bit. What we see in Anna is that she could have done what we're all tempted to do in waiting, but she didn't. She chose to give herself to what was hard, to discipline her entire life towards the promise so that she could, when it finally arrived, taste fully not only the goodness of the gift, but know more deeply the goodness of the gift giver. How Anna waited and how Anna worshipped as she waited led her life to be a witness. And this leads us to our third movement. In our story, we find Anna is named as a witness by theologians and scholars both. She was someone who had firsthand knowledge of something being true based on their experience of it. And it just so happened that her something being true, the thing that she witnessed was that Jesus was the Messiah and he had come. Now, witness, we don't use that language very often in our culture, but when we do, it's usually followed by a court of law or in reference to a defense of someone or something. Witness to us may seem like a more benign or a archaic detail of this story, but within it lies something essential for us in understanding what waiting leads to, what it is meant to produce in us. Luke tells us that Anna was a prophet. Prophets are people who fundamentally put their hope in the promises of God even when they're not experiencing them. They are people who wait on and believe God to fulfill his promises to them. This means that Anna, from the jump, was someone who had cultivated eyes to see beyond her circumstances, eyes to see beyond her pain to the promise of what could be. She was someone who cultivated faith and lived in hope, basing how she lived on the ultimate promise that God would do what he said. She waited for a miracle. And within her prophetness, we know that she held out hope and vision in the waiting that calls us to consider how we should do the same. There was a witness in Anna as a spiritual leader, a prophet. But equally as important, and I think even more so, there is also a witness in her person, in her human life and experience that I think invites us to know that the experience of waiting well and waiting with hope is for more than just the spiritual giants among us, but it's for all of us. It's for all people coming from all places and all kinds of circumstances. Anna was a woman who was human in every respect, enduring very human experiences of loss and transition and change. Again, while her biography, at least from Luke, is short, he has given us enough context to know that she was someone who had suffered. She knew death, and not just of a relationship in her life, but of the future dreams that were connected to that relationship. Anna knew what it meant to carry the weight of picking up her life after her dreams had been shattered. 
She was a woman who knew the pain of loneliness and isolation. In a very real way, Anna waited for something that would bring consolation to every place she knew desolation, both inside her and to the world around her. Anna knew what it meant to wait for something she could not hold in her hands or be assured of perfectly. And it was this, her life and the reality and pain of her circumstances that gave both potency and a unique and compelling credibility to her witness. The witness of Anna's life was not just this miracle, but the path she walked to it. It was seeing the very face of God after waiting her whole life to do so, but it was also every day in the temple before that. Witness is a declaration that what you hoped for has come to be, and Anna was a witness. But not just that Jesus was who she hoped he'd be, but she was a witness to all those who would hope in God's promises, to all who would wait or need hope in the waiting. So I have to ask you again, what are you waiting for? In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes a scene that for me has always captured the state of what feels like the in-between of waiting. You see, while inspiring moments in a sermon like this one can touch the ache of waiting, apart from this great inspiration, we all know that waiting has the ability to take a toll on a soul like nothing else. Even now, I know from the faces I have seen in this room the ache that so many of you are carrying, the ache of waiting that somehow can be deepened in seasons like this one. Another year that they still aren't home. Another year alone. Another year that the baby you've prayed for still awaits its conception. Another year of unhappiness in a job or a relationship that never seems to change no matter how hard you are fighting. The in-between is what one of the main characters in Lewis's book describes as always winter and never Christmas. The feeling of being in the world around you without knowing the beauty of what it could be. This ache, this is one that we all face in our waiting. So, what do you do? What do we do when it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. Now, most of us will do two things when waiting feels hard or painful or impossible, and that is either reach for control or try and redefine time. We are so big for our britches, aren't we? <laughs> I'm going to offer a word on each. In waiting, in the absence or the in-between of what we hope will be, each of us will feel the innate desire to have both agency and predictability. This is just how we were designed. We will feel an ache to feel safe, to feel as though we won't be let down or won't be hurt. And this, that moment, is where most of us will reach to control our circumstances. Control, or even the illusion of it, is what makes us feel like we will be okay. And though never fully governed in our lives, because it's an illusion, Control is the footing most of us look for in the free fall. Now, I don't know what control looks like in your life. Maybe it comes through a narrative change. Maybe it comes through people by micro-manipulation or distortion. Maybe it's through resignation or withdrawal. I don't know what it is for you, but what I do know 
is that the problem with control is that it not only restricts and occupies the space where God could meet us, but it also dilutes the experience of waiting altogether. It taints us and our waiting. It, control, through its presence, obstructs, obstructs our ability to see and know the intimacy that can be won in waiting. Control is a reach for power when we feel powerless, but it's control that diminishes not only our faith, but ironically our ability to actually be kept safe in the waiting. And control is not the only thing we do, because waiting for us lives in the construct that is time. And we will, in our desire to ease the discomfort, want to rearrange or redefine it. We'll want to redefine the time that we wait, the time our promise or the answer is supposed to arrive. We'll want to redefine the time it takes to see this all the way through. Time is what we will, most of us, want to redefine over and over until we find some sort of half-truth or sense of resolution to stand on. It is what most will feel restricted by and what most will resist at their core. But waiting, this idea of godly waiting exists not in how we define time, but in how God defines time. And here's a pro tip, because I guess I'm a pro. God exists outside of time, and his timing is always perfect. Time for God is about what he can see, not just today, but yesterday and tomorrow. So time for us will never look like time for him. And it's here, in our desire to understand and redefine or control time, that we have to avail ourselves to the vulnerability that is his timing, and to let that not frustrate us, but actually free us to experience the rest that comes when we let him define what faith looks like as we wait on him. Now, it has to be said that behind both of those responses lives the undercurrent or the great lie that is fear. Fear that God won't do what he said he would or can't, or at the very least will be late. Fear that I've blown it. Fear that I will miss it. Fear that I'll never see what I hope to see. Fear is what we really combat in waiting. And it's only overcome by faith. Faith is the great procurer of the soul. And when leaned into, especially in waiting, it will, by proxy alone, refine who we become in our waiting. It will define for us that which we actually hope for, which is a whole other sermon in and of itself. And it will, when we exercise faith, propel us towards real joy in our waiting. Faith is a fire and a force. And just as we saw in Anna's witness, it has the ability to shape our waiting into something that doesn't just emphasize the ending, but to who we become in light of that. Who we become in the waiting, in the dynamic dance that is Communion with God in the hard places of faith not only calls us to surrender our fears, but it also reveals to us what true waiting, what godly waiting requires. From Anna's life, from her waiting and her worship and from her witness, I think comes three invitations for us to take, to put in our back pocket because we'll use it for another day or we'll use it today. So let's look at those together. The first is obedience. 
Now, obedience, that word is going to throw a lot of you off here in the room, and I'm well aware of that, largely because your parents threw it at you pretty hard, uh, especially in middle school, for some of you men in the room. Just a, just a word to the church, receive and be blessed. Kidding. Let me just say, I heard it a lot in my household, too, still do, you know? Let's obey. Let's do what we were asked to do when we asked, were asked to do it with a happy heart, yeah? Yikes. Obedience. Obedience and waiting can be defined simply. And it can be best defined as submission to the circumstances, the moment, or the season. It's less about completing the directive and more about trust. Trust God's timing, his plan, his presence. Put your trust in God's love to be big enough to hold you as you wait and big enough to do more than you could have imagined in your waiting. Obedience is waiting, and it is an act of preparing your heart for what you will receive, for what is promised, and it's done by the daily yielding to the one who can bring it about. Which leads us to our second point, surrender. Surrender is about position. It's about being released from the servitude of our own desires and selfish hopes and fears and surrendering to the only one who can rightly lead us and help us and guide us and transform us as we wait. Often surrender is seen as resignation, but in the faith it is actually response. A response to the invitation of God even when it's not comfortable even when it's not how we want it to look, even when our arms are filled with the things that keep us safe. The guards we put up, the beliefs or the assumptions or the scriptures we hold to make ourselves feel better or to try to piece together the puzzle. Surrender in the waiting is about positioning our hearts to receive from God that which only he can give, but he cannot give if your arms are full of other things. Which means that it starts by laying down our own perspective our own sense of control, our own ways, and instead surrendering those things so that we can receive and embrace his. Finally, from Anna's life, I think we're invited to consider our appetite, a word I mentioned even earlier. Appetite is the cultivating of hunger for the right things, the true things. And just like Anna, we see that What we abstain from and partake in both shape the meal we have when our waiting gives way to the promise. In waiting, what we cultivate and what we starve out of us, what we indulge in will shape what we hunger for. If we indulge ourselves prematurely in lesser things, then the journey of waiting will be filled with an insatiable appetite that is never satisfied, leading us to despair and disappointment. And some of you are there tonight. But if we abstain from that which won't actually satisfy us, which takes immense amount of discipline, then then we will, the promise in that is that we will be hungry for what will actually satisfy us, leading us to a place of hope and true faith in the one who can give us that which we most desire. Obedience, surrender, and appetite, this is how we wait well, and each of those things are hard to do. Each of those things cost you in waiting, but it is the way we experience the reality of God, the only one who can help us, teach us, lead us, transform us in the waiting. I have to ask one last time, what are you waiting for? And how are you waiting? 
and what is waiting doing in you and to you. Waiting is something, like I mentioned earlier, that I'm accustomed to. Many of you know part of my story, but waiting is at the center of some of its biggest moments, like I know so many of you have the same kind of experience. And waiting has given way to the best miracles of my life. For seven years, I waited to see my mom again, and the day I did, I knew God's miraculous goodness in a way I will never be able to put into words. For years, I waited to be a pastor, which might sound totally lame to a lot of you. But as a woman, and in my context, that journey felt long. There was a day not too long ago when I stood on a similar stage to this and was commissioned as one. And then, surprise, surprise, an elder. Dreams realized, aches remedied. These are just two things that I have waited for and seen God's faithfulness in and both have shaped me like no other things on earth have. And preachers say that all the time, but that's true for me. Both hurt me, both cost me, both demanded in me surrender I didn't know was possible, and both surfaced the most fearful places in me and the most fearful things that live in me. Waiting, I know, is hard to do because I'm still waiting. In Advent, this idea of waiting can be felt and identified more clearly than in any other season on the calendar. And because of that, what we're waiting for can be felt more acutely too. But it's here, in this opening, this ache, that we're invited to enter in, not at a surface level, but at a deeper level, at a soul level. And we're invited to consider what our waiting is doing to us. And also to consider how we might experience God more intimately and more deeply along the way. Waiting is and will continue to be a part of your story. But what we know from Anna is that how you wait is just as important as what you're waiting for. There is a reward for those who wait. And it is to both see and know the God who fulfills his promise. He is, and he always will be the gift giver, but more importantly, the gift himself. And he, he is worth waiting.